As Andrew just read, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 this morning, and I'm excited just to open up the Bible um, and for us to explore it this morning. If you are new to us this morning or if you've never received a scripture journal, we want to make sure that you get one of those so that you can be able to follow along in the passage and so that you can be able to take notes. Um, if you just want to raise your hand, then a couple people will come around and they'll give you a scripture journal. A couple hands there in the back. All right. So what we want to talk about this morning, I want to give you the title of my message this morning. The title of the message is Empowered to Reconcile. Empowered to Reconcile. And this morning, we're going to actually talk about the entirety of Acts chapter 10. We're going to walk through all 48 verses in a sense. Uh, we're not going to read every single verse, but we're going to walk through what the entire chapter is about. And I want to begin this morning uh, by asking you all a very simple question, very simple question. And that is this question. When was the last time that you went outside of your comfort zone? When's the last time you went outside of your comfort zone? You see, we call it our comfort zone for a reason. We like to be comfortable. We rarely do things to go beyond our comfort zone. This morning, God is going to call each one of us, every one of us, to go beyond our comfort zone. He's going to call us to go and reach some people that we may think are impossible to reach. That's the message that God's trying to get across to us in his word. Are there people in and around your life that you feel like are impossible to reach? If it were up to us, that answer would obviously be yes. There are certainly for us people that we feel like are impossible to reach, impossible to give the gospel to, impossible to be able to help understand God and who he is. That's certainly the way that we would answer that question. For man, it is impossible. But I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. Our, word, our Lord, um, he's talking to his disciples and the disciples are, you know, having this engaged conversation with Jesus. And as they're speaking, Jesus says, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew 19, verse 25, the word says this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, in God's economy, there is no person who is impossible to reach. Knowing that God is behind our efforts should embolden us to look beyond class and color, to look beyond creed and race and culture, to go beyond tradition or intelligence, beyond function or employment. We can look beyond all of those things as we reach people for God because Jesus can transform anyone and Jesus is for everyone. God has called all of us to believe that Jesus is for everyone. And there was a man who had a preconceived set of biases and a preconceived notion about who God could and could not reach. Here in a second in this passage in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see that Peter is in Joppa. That's, that's where Daniel last week left off with us. In chapter 9, Peter was in Joppa. And so Peter's in Joppa. But he's not the only person in Scripture that's ever been to this city of Joppa. There was another person who lived long before Peter who went to Joppa, who was Jonah. And Jonah was the prophet that God called to go and reach the Ninevites. 
God called him to go into the Assyrian Empire and to reach those people, and Jonah was reluctant. He was resistant. He actually went in the total opposite direction of God's will, and he decided that those people were unreachable. Those were people that he did not want to bring God's message to because that was too difficult, because it was going to be too hard for him to be able to go into a context like that among those people who fought against the Israelites and to bring them that message of salvation. Jonah was very reluctant to bring God's message. And so he ran away from God all the way to this town of Joppa. And we see that what God was trying to to show Jonah was God was trying to show Jonah that he could reach anyone. Even those people who were total idol worshipers, um, as we sang about a second ago, those people who were worshiping foreign gods, even those people who seemed to be completely outside of God could be reached with God's message. And so God called Jonah to go and bring that message. God didn't want to do it because he knew that if he would just preach that message, repentance and faith would be granted, and those people would turn to God. The unreachable people would be reached. And what happened in that passage was, from the greatest of them, Jonah says, all the way to the least of them, all the people turned and believed in God. And God, in turn, turned away from the disaster that he had promised if they didn't receive him if they didn't come to faith in him. And what Jonah shows us is that there are no unreachable people. In every generation, God sends this call out to his people to go beyond themselves, to go outside of their comfort zone, and to reach people that we feel as though are difficult to reach. That's in every generation, not just in Jonah's day, but also in ours. Let's look at that in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. The word says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. What I want to show you here as we begin right here in Acts chapter 10 is I want to show you just a little bit of the background of what's going on here. You see, God always wants to break down the barriers that divide humanity from one another. In the flow of the story of Acts, this final wall that he was going to break down in Peter's life was a major barrier, not just to Peter, but to the early church. You see, what we're going to talk about today is this little idea that's a really big principle in God's word. And it's this idea, it's this principle. It's the idea that God wants his people, the Jews, to go beyond themselves and to bring the message to the Gentiles. You see, Jews, generally speaking, interacted with the Gentiles as little as possible. They were as cut off from that group of people as they could possibly be. Uh, Within the rabbinic tradition, the Jews were socially completely restricted from being able to interact with Jews in almost every conceivable way. Let me give you a couple examples of that. So strict were the Jews that if a Jew bought oil or milk or bread from a Gentile, that item could be sold to another Gentile, but it could never be sold to a Jew. The food items that they bought could be eaten only by Gentiles because whenever a Gentile was associated with any type of food item, that item was automatically unclean. No Jew would ever eat with a Gentile at all. If a Jew bought cooking utensils from a Gentile, that utensil had to be purified with fire and with water before they would use it. Anything that was in the hands of a Gentile at any time was considered ceremonially unclean altogether. 
The barriers between Jews and Gentiles were massive. If they couldn't eat together, imagine everything else that they could not do with one another. But there weren't just barriers on the Jewish side, but there are also barriers on the Gentile side. You see, Gentiles had their own issues with the Jews as well. Gentiles looked down on and even laughed at all of those customs of Jews. From the abstinence of certain foods and the dietary laws that Jews had, to circumcision, all the way to Sabbath day rest, and most of all, this worship of one invisible God to the Gentile was complete idiocy. It made no sense why they would do that. They thought that the Jews lived an utterly ridiculous life, and it was all a sham and a laughingstock. And so from the Gentile side as well, there was just as much of a barrier there between their ability to be able to connect with one another. They absolutely did not want to associate with Jews, and Jews absolutely did not associate whatsoever with Gentiles. I want to read to you this quote by um, a theologian named Thomas Merton. He said this. He says, we are not at peace with others because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. You see, what God does is when God brings us into a peaceful relationship with himself, he restores our ability to connect with people. Despite the, the, the natural and the cultural separation of Jews and Gentiles, God was beginning to break down the barriers in Peter's life and in the early church as a whole. I want to take you back to Acts chapter 9. I want to show you a couple areas where you can begin to see God taking those barriers between these two groups of people, particularly in Peter's life, and removing those barriers from him. Acts chapter 9 verse 31 says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, it says the church in Samaria had peace and was multiplying. As you may recall from just your scripture memory, Samaritans and Jews had no interactions at all. And here we read in chapter 9 that there is a Samaritan church. And so God's beginning to break down barriers there between the Samaritans who were half Jew, half Gentile. That was a massive barrier. And obviously we see a church there. But not only that, you also see in Acts chapter 9, verses 40 through 43, the words say this, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And there are so many times where there's like this little tiny phrase in the Bible, this little small phrase in God's word, and we just read over it so quickly, but there's so much worth and value there. And what we see in verse 43 is that Peter stayed with Simon, a tanner. He said, what's the significance of that? What's the significance of the fact that Peter stays with Simon, a tanner? Well, tanners were people who dealt with the skin of dead animals. They were the people who used those skins to make leather. 
And so consequently, one of the things that they had to do, obviously, was touch what is dead, which was strictly forbidden by Jews to do. And one of the major Jewish um, written, sorry, Jewish oral traditions that became written is called the Mishnah. Some Jews to this day still follow the principles in the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, it says this. It says, any woman who marries a guy who becomes a tanner has the right to divorce him. She could 100% divorce him because being a tanner was considered ceremonially unclean because they lived in that uncleanness every single day because of the fact that they touched and dealt with dead animals each day. Legitimately, through the law, they could be divorced. That's how bad it is to be a tanner. And here you have Peter, who is in the house of one Simon the tanner, Luke tells us in verse 43. So that barrier between Jews and Gentiles, so, sorry, that barrier between a Jew to a Jew, even Peter amongst his own people has a type of person that he would never associate with, a type of person that he would never come into contact with at all. He's living in the house, it says in verse 43, for many days with one Simon a tanner, because God called him to go beyond. God called him to do more than what his culture asked him to do. God called him to reach people and to bring the gospel to people that would otherwise be completely outside of the covenant people's relationship. And so God's laying this foundation for us in verse 43. He's beginning to break down these walls and these barriers, which he's going to fully break through in chapter 10. What we see after we look at this background is we see a message prepared. There's a message here that's prepared. And this message that God's preparing is for two different men. He's preparing a message for two men. And you see, when God prepares to save a soul, he always uses a messenger to give that message, his message, to the appointed receiver. The messenger in this case is Peter, and the receiver in this case is Cornelius. Let's begin by looking at one of these two men. Let's begin to look at Cornelius. You see, right here in chapter 10, it immediately tells us the story of Cornelius. And what we see here is we see that God chose Cornelius to be the first Gentile convert for Peter. There were tons of Gentiles who could have turned and trusted in Christ, but this was going to be the first one for Peter as the leader of the early church. God chose this one particular man. I want you to look at John chapter 6, verses 42 through 44. The word says this in verse 42. Jesus is, he's ministering, and he's coming to this place where he's trying to give the message, his message of, of salvation to people in his hometown. And the people in his hometown say this. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven. Verse 43 says, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the way God works is that God doesn't sit on his hands. God doesn't sit by and hope that one day it will just figure it out and just realize that we need him. God doesn't leave us in our lost state just to wander around in the dark. But what God does is God brings us to himself. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him to me. 
And what we see with God and Cornelius is that God is calling Cornelius to himself. God is leading Cornelius to believe in him. You see, God chose Cornelius to be the first Gentile convert for Peter. God drew Cornelius. But Cornelius also chose God. He desired, in verse 2, he desired to know the one true God. I believe that every man who has a sincere desire to know the one true and living God will get the message of salvation and will be saved. You see, here we find a man who wants to know the one true and living God despite what all those other Gentiles worship. Cornelius comes to God and God comes to Cornelius. Both of those things can be true. You see, God never saves a man apart from his willingness to be saved, and yet God draws every man to salvation because it is our Savior's desire to bring them to himself. Jesus, once again in John chapter 6, jumping down to verse 37, he says these words. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He goes on to say in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says every person to come to me has to be drawn. He says he will receive every single person by faith who wants to know him and trust in him. He gives them eternal life. You see, though these two ideas to us seem to be contradictory, the fact that that God could choose Cornelius and Cornelius can choose God, these two truths are harmonious in Scripture. And these two truths are consistent in Scripture. We come to God and God comes to us. The fact that we can't fully understand that idea is one of the things, among many things, that makes God God and makes us us. But we see him drawing Cornelius to salvation. We read here that Cornelius lived in Caesarea. Caesarea was this uh, beautiful coastal town right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Today, if you were to go there, there's nothing but ruins. But in the past, there was this incredible city that resided on the coastline. The city held palaces, many public buildings, had uh, different things like an amphitheater, and it even had a magnificent harbor, which was the envy of the Roman world. Philip the Evangelist, he preached here a couple chapters before this one. Paul traveled through here many times. We're going to read about that in coming weeks. And eventually, when Paul was in prison, he was in prison in Caesarea before he was eventually transferred to Rome to face his execution. At this time, though, Peter was in Joppa, and Caesarea was the military headquarters of the Roman government in the region. The city was mainly populated by Gentiles. It had very few Jews within it. It was about 30 miles north of Joppa, and Peter was just getting done with the healing of Tabitha as God was about to bring to him this message that was to go to Cornelius. Let's look even more at Cornelius as a person. So the word tells us that he was an Italian, maybe even from Rome itself. As a centurion, he commanded 100 men. And the way that the Romans organized the military was a Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers in it. And then underneath that Roman legion, you had uh, 10 cohorts. And each cohort itself had 600 men in it. And then within that cohort of 600 men, there were centurions. There were six of them. 
over 100 people each. And so Cornelius was one of those centurions over 100 people within the Roman army. That's the type of person that was. That was his background. But what we also see about Cornelius is something uh, more more invisible, something that we can't necessarily see on the surface that Luke gives us insight into. We see that Cornelius had this seeking, willing heart. We see he has a soft, tender heart towards God. Verse 2 says, a devout man, this is Cornelius, he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. We see that Cornelius was a person with a sincere, willing, seeking heart. He was trying to do his best to pursue God. In the Jewish mind, there were three different types of Gentiles. There were normal Gentiles, and that's pretty self-explanatory. They were idol worshipers. They did all those normal things that Gentiles do. And then there were also a second category of Gentiles. There were those God-fearing Gentiles. And what made God-fearing Gentiles unique is that they believed in the God of Israel. They believed that he was the one true God. They rejected polytheism. They prayed to God. They believed in the Jewish ethics and uh, so many of the Jewish moral code. And they attended the synagogue or the temple, much like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8. Those were the God-fearing Gentiles. There's also a third type of Gentile that's also the proselyte Gentile. And the proselyte Gentiles believed all the same things that that second group does, plus they were circumcised, plus they fully identified themselves as a Jew. And so we see these three types of Gentiles. Now, Cornelius is that second type. Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile. You see, he detached himself from those ritual practices of the Romans, and he attached himself to the Jewish religion. He may not have been circumcised or followed all of the ceremonial laws, but he believed in and worshipped the one true God. And there is something really important here about that. We see from the beginning, verse 2, that Cornelius was a devout man. He was a devout man. And what this shows us is that being religious does not make you a child of God. Being religious doesn't make you a child of God. You see, Cornelius was not a believer before Peter came. How do I know that? Well, Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 13 and 14 say this. This is um, Peter talking. He says, and he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. You see, the angel tells Cornelius that he's going to send Peter so that he can hear the message, so that he can be saved, both he and his household. He was not a believer before Peter came. Despite the fact that he was devout, despite the fact that he was religious, despite the fact he had gone through all those rituals and had done all the rites, had all those outward things that were true of him that made him look like he identified with God and identified with the people of God, none of those things saved him. None of those things transferred him into God's kingdom or made him one of God's people. All of those religious things had no bearing on his soul. All the religious rites on the planet will not make you a Christian. You see, there are many religious people who are not saved. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and verse 41 says this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, 
and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This, this is the apostles. The apostles are getting the gift of tongues so that they can be able to give the message of the gospel to all of these different people from all of these different lands who were all Jews. They were giving the message out to them. But notice what it says in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, under heaven. And then jumping down to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church, despite the fact that they were devout, despite the fact that those Jews had done all of those religious rituals, they were not saved until they heard the message preached by Peter and the apostles, and they received and believed in Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. All the devotion in the world will not, in and of itself, make you a child of God. You see, what you have to do is you have to turn from sin to Jesus. That makes you a child of God. Religious sincerity and right works, they won't save you. Only personal trust in Jesus will save you from the Father's judgment. And we see that here in this story about Cornelius. Cornelius was not a believer before Peter came because devotion and good works cannot transfer you into God's family. I want you to see that. But not only that, let's look down in verse 9. Verse 9 says this. The next day is... They were on their journey, this is in Acts 10, and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not only was the message prepared for the messengers, but God wanted to make sure that he had his messenger prepared. You see, Peter, still in Joppa, staying with Simon the Tanner, goes up to pray around noon. What he didn't know was that God was about to move some massive barriers in his life so that he could be a more effective messenger. Just like God chose Cornelius, the receiver of the message, so too does God choose the messenger, Peter. This is so like God to do what he's about to do with Peter when he chooses him to be his messenger. You know, you think back to, to, to Abraham, you know how Abraham is, he, he, he's um, off in the desert and God reveals himself to him and says, I'm gonna call you to be the father of many nations. And you think back to the story of, of Moses, you know, as Moses is out tending the flock and God speaks to him from the burning bush and he says, I want to call you to lead my people out of Egypt. And you see that when God sees um, Samuel, Samuel, the little tiny boy Samuel, he's, he's in the temple and God says, Samuel, Samuel, God speaks to him. He calls him out. And even David, David, who was just a shepherd boy, taking care of his father's sheep, 
He's out there in the midst of all the sheep, and, and God calls him out of uh, the flock, away from the flock to go and to become king. And one of my favorite times where God causes someone to know him and to be appointed as his messenger was with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. We see that God says, Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you in eternity past, and I appointed you to be my messenger to bring this message to my people. You see, what God's doing with Peter, choosing him to be the messenger, is not unusual. What God does with Peter, choosing him to be the messenger, is not uncommon. What God did with Peter to make him his messenger is the exact same thing that God wants to do with you, with each and every one of you. One of the things that burdens me so much whenever I read the Bible with people is the fact that like people are so good at like remembering what happened, like remembering what scripture says, remembering all the little nuances of the things that the Bible says, but they so oftentimes forget that this is a message given to God's people so that we will know God and follow God better. So when God is telling Peter in this passage to be his messenger, he's giving him this vision. He's showing him all of these clean and unclean animals. God is telling him that he wants him to be his messenger. That message is for you. That message is so that you know that what God did with Peter is the exact same thing as what God is calling you to do as a believer, as a Christian. He is calling you to bring his message to his people. This isn't just something that he tells us so we'll have a bunch of head knowledge, so we can have a bunch of facts in our mind, but he has written this word so that we will know him and obey him and follow him, and in like manner, just like the apostles, just like the early believers, we will follow in their footsteps and do what they did. You see, God is still calling people to be his messengers. That's what he's called you to do, be his messengers. And so that should lead us not to be afraid to go where God calls us to go. You see, God wants to use you to bring his message. And what God did here is he chose this special mission for Peter by giving him a special vision. You see, God showed Peter a sheep being lowered by four corners with all kinds of animals on it. And the voice of Jesus tells Peter to eat. Now with the perfect Peter reaction, he rebukes the Lord. You know, like if, if you remember in the Gospels, Peter very frequently rebukes Jesus um, as though he could do that or as though he should do that. Um, and it's no different now. Jesus has been glorified. He's ascended in the air. And here Jesus is in, in heaven. And nonetheless, Peter says, no, Lord, I, I, I don't eat stuff like that. I've never eaten anything unclean or common or defiled. He says, no, Lord. Peter, like any good Jew, like any faithful Jew at this time, looked at books like Leviticus uh, chapter 11, and he followed what God wrote there very strictly. You see, Peter says he had never eaten anything deemed unclean in the law. 
He knew that he couldn't eat things like um, buck, buckle, you're all seatbelts. It's going to be kind of weird. Um, he knew that he couldn't eat things like camels or rock badgers or hares or pigs or anything from the water that didn't have scales or fins. Jews couldn't eat falcons or ravens or hawks or bats or mice or geckos or chameleons. Yes, it says all those things. God was very specific in Leviticus 11, among other places, when he told his people what they could and could not eat. And the reason why he gave them those dietary laws, those restrictions, was so that they would remember that they were holy. They're his people. They're his set-apart people. And one of the ways that they showed that was by being set apart from all the peoples and what they ate. You see, they were to be utterly distinct and unique among the nations. And Peter says, Lord, I've obeyed every dietary law my entire life. I've never, ever eaten anything like that. Peter says he doesn't eat defiled things. And to get his point across, God shows Peter the vision three times. Not just once, not just twice, but three times God shows Peter this vision. He does that so that there would be no mistaking the message. There would be no misinterpreting the revelation. God was officially saying the time of separation was over. God was calling Peter to go outside of his comfort zone. God is calling us to do the same. One main message being conveyed by God here in uh, this, this vision that Peter gets is that Jews and Gentiles can eat together. Jews and Gentiles can eat together. The clean animals represent the Jews, and the unclean animals represent the Gentiles. The sheet represents the church, and in the church, both Jews and Gentiles can come together. The sheet with all the animals was at once taken up to heaven. Both Jews and Gentiles will make it into the eternal kingdom. They'll all go up together. God wanted Peter to fully embrace that reality, and so he gives him this vision. And this was the final confirmation from God that the Gentiles were fully to be included in his plan. They're fully to receive the message of salvation. And just to confirm this fact even more, as soon as the sheet was taken up the third time, there was this, um, this, this knock at the gate. There was the immediate arrival of the soldiers at Simon the Tanner's gate, asking for Simon Peter. Immediately, as soon as it went up the third time, God says, I want you to know right now that now is the time for you to go. Go and bring my message. And I want you all to see one more thing here. I want you to see that God wanted a multitude to be saved. Notice verse 24 and, 20, uh, verse 24 and 33. It says, and on the following day, they answered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. He'd gotten his friends ready. He'd gotten his relatives ready. Verse 33 says this, So I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. Cornelius says, I've gathered everyone. God has this multitude ready to be saved. If one Gentile would have been saved, this is, this is kind, of, kind of my interpretation as to why God didn't just let Cornelius be saved, but he saved his entire household. If one Gentile would have been saved, 
then they could have said, you know what? That was just a one-time deal. God just saved this one Gentile, this one time, and, you know, maybe they should be included, maybe not. But God brought all these Gentiles into Cornelius' house, all of his relatives, all of his close friends, put them all into this house so they'd all hear the message and they'll all be saved, and then they will know that God absolutely wants all people who are Gentiles to come to faith in him. They're fully included in the family. Verse 34 says this, continuing on. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And it's so frequent in Scripture, and this is encouraging to me as a person who fails often, it's so frequent in Scripture that we see Peter fail Jesus, and we see Peter get ahead of God's plan, and we see Peter do something other than what God wants him to do. Uh, for example, when he's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the soldiers come to take Christ and Peter, you know, cuts off the ear of one of those soldiers. He gets ahead of God's plan and he does what God doesn't want him to do. We see that so often with Peter, him making mistakes, which is encouraging to me because that shows me that, that, that I can make mistakes and still be in the family. I can make mistakes and still be able to, to, to come to God. Uh, Jesus doesn't cast him aside. Uh, Jesus actually does quite the opposite. Jesus, um, he doubles down on his appointed role as the leader of the early church. And what we see here with Peter is we see one of the times where Peter actually does, he gets it. Like he does what God wants him to do. Like he gets the message. We see in verse 34 that he says, God shows no partiality. All people everywhere, whoever feels, whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter got the vision. Peter got the purpose of that message that God was trying to give to him, which is so encouraging to see him get it. I want to I tell you this, um, this uh, Civil War story. Um, I, I, I don't know if I frequently told you guys this from, from here, but whenever I was at UF, I was a history major. Um, and so consequently, I love history. Um, and so I want to I wanna give you this, this Civil War story. i kind of illustrate this point. Uh, one, of, one of the great regiments in the Civil War uh, was the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Uh, some of you may know of them because they were featured prominently in a movie about the Civil War. That was, uh, that's a very famous Civil War movie. And the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment is best known for leading the failed Union assault on Fort Wagner, which was a Confederate fortification on Morris Island in South Carolina. That fort guarded the Port of Charleston, and they began to storm it on July the 18th, 1863. The 54th was the second all-black Union regiment to fight in the war. There were very few blacks in Massachusetts whenever the governor, uh, who was John A. Andrew, himself an abolitionist, called on blacks to serve in the Union Army. There are very few in Massachusetts. And so consequently, blacks from New York and Indiana, Ohio, as well as from Canada, slave states, and even the Caribbean, they came from all over to join this 1,000-plus member military regiment in the Union Army. Their leader was actually a 25-year-old white officer named Robert Shaw. He was the son of very wealthy and prominent abolitionist parents. And Shaw actually was attending Harvard 
and he dropped out of Harvard so that he can join the Union Army. And during the assault that Shaw led with, those, with that, that all-black regiment, during that assault on Fort Wagner, uh, he led about 600 of the regiment over the walls of the fort on July the 18th. And tragically, the Confederate soldiers were ready for the attack, and they killed many of the 54th troops that day, including Shaw, who was shot as soon as he crossed over the wall of the fort. Uh, he was shot instantly, and he instantly died. The Confederates dumped all of the bodies in an unmarked trench, and they sent a message to the Union leaders saying, we have buried Shaw with his inwards. And the Southerners thought that this would erode the Northerners' will to fight with black soldiers, to fight with black troops. But it had the complete opposite effect. You see, I love Shaw's parents' reply to that message that the Confederate officers gave to the Union. They said this, they said, there is, quote, no holier place, end quote, to be buried than, quote, surrounded by brave and devoted soldiers. They could think of no better place for their son to be at this time in our history than to be surrounded by brave and dedicated Soldiers. They saw them as just soldiers, not, not black soldiers or soldiers that were unworthy of being mingled with, but they were just soldiers. And even in our country, we know the sin of prejudice and of bigotry and of hatred, which was so similar to the divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles, that separation of people. And this Civil War story is a story of reconciliation. You see, there were very few blacks that could be involved in any way with the, the war effort initially, but God was reconciling the two groups together. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Civil War of reconciliation. And that is what God is calling these Jews to do in Acts chapter 10. He's calling them to come together with the Gentiles, to come together with those people that they would never normally associate with, that they would never normally be in any type of community with, that they wouldn't even eat with. He was calling them to come together, to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. God is communicating to Peter that he is an ambassador of reconciliation. Let's look at that message that God gives Peter. Peter gives all of the parties in attendance the gospel. He begins by showing what he learned from the vision, the lesson that he learned from that vision. He now knows that, his words, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't have favorites. All who honor God as God and who seek to please him can come to him, says Peter. He, in effect, says, God's grace is for everyone. Salvation is available to all. There are no distinctions. There are no classes. Race does not matter. Socioeconomic status is irrelevant. Your culture is not a barrier. Your background will not hinder you from God being able to transform you. God is no respecter of persons. It is in his nature to save. The gospel is for all of humanity. 
Peter tells them, and he tells us today, that God sent Jesus to bring us peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Listen, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul as he summarizes this idea. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he says these magnificent words. I, I hope that when you read this passage, that you insert yourself into this passage and you see that you are included here if you are a, a non-Jewish person, uh, which as far as I know, um, as far as I know, there's only one Jewish person in here. Um, hey, over there. Um, so this is what God says to his people through Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one, one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. He says Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another. Jesus came to bring us peace. And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, he said these words, he says, when we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to men. And man, that's such a, that is such a great idea. Um, I, I, I pray that that is a reality for you, that having been reconciled to God, you have been reconciled to men. Verse 44. We, we bring this thing in for landing. Verse 44 says these words. While Peter was still saying these things, so he's, he's still giving the gospel, He's still proclaiming the message. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. What we see there is that the message was received. 
You see, God interrupted Peter to save Cornelius and all who heard the word in his home. He didn't wait for Peter to get to some sort of climax. God just broke through in his timing after Christ was shared. He does the same thing with people today. Some of you have been or know someone who was simply listening to a message and in a moment fully turned from their way and was fully able to trust in Christ and be saved. This reminds me, this, 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 this thought reminds me of my salvation experience. It reminds me that, that there was a day where I sat um, in my ninth grade biology class and uh, I was shocked because um, my teacher turned on the, the, the TV, which was unusual uh, because we only watched TV during the announcements. Um, and she turned on the, the TV and I watched on TV um, this uh, video of New York. And uh, right there live while we were watching this uh, video of New York, I saw uh, this plane come into view of the, the, the camera and I saw this plane live hit the second tower of the World Trade Tower of the, the World Trade Center. And that night, later that night, um, I sat in my room on my bed and I watched the firefighters climb through the rubble. And I wondered for the very first time, seriously, I, I thought this before, but never seriously, never before this day, I, I wondered for the very first time, seriously, what happens when you die? When you die, what happens? I began seeking God that night which was September the 11th, 2001. I began seeking God that night. But my seeking didn't save me. I would learn later that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so later, about two months later, actually, I would hear the word of God for the first time and he would transform me like he did with Cornelius and those other Gentile believers. And that was a, a massive moment for me in my spiritual life, this moment of, of transformation that God does when a person believes in him. And what we see is that at this time, here in this passage, so, so leaving, leaving my story, but looking at the story continued in this book of the Bible, at this time, God needed to give the early church a sign that Gentiles were indeed fully included in salvation and full members of the household of God. Consequently, he sent the Holy Spirit to give them the gift of speaking in tongues so that they can magnify the glory of God. And this was exactly what happened to Peter we read about earlier in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter gets the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and when he receives the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives him the ability to speak in tongues. Well, the exact same thing happens right here in chapter 10. When the Gentiles believed, they immediately began to speak in tongues. And what we see here is that he, God sent the Holy Spirit to give them this gift, and what the Gentiles received was the exact same sign gift, so as to confirm that God was calling all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. All people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. God showed Peter and all the Jews with him that salvation was for everyone. As we said before, in the book of Acts, there are descriptive texts and there are prescriptive texts. This is a descriptive text. This is a text that just shows us what God did. It's just describing to us what God did. This doesn't mean that you have to speak in tongues to be saved. That was a sign gift that confirmed 
the full inclusion of the Gentiles into the faith. You can be saved and not speak in tongues, and we see that often in the book of Acts um, itself. You know, so to Acts itself isn't saying that to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Uh, when we looked at the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch weeks ago, he was saved, and he didn't speak in tongues after that happened. So Acts isn't saying that. But what it is saying here is that to confirm the fact that the Gentiles were included in the family, they showed the believing Jews the exact same sign gift. And the Jews with Peter were amazed, the word says, that the Holy Spirit was poured out in the exact same way as they had received him. And I love how Peter right here, he commands the new Gentile believers to be baptized. He could have done it himself. You know, Philip, when he's with the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he, he himself baptizes the, the Ethiopian eunuch. But here, Peter, who could have done it himself, has the believing Jews who are with him baptize them instead of him doing it. And the way that I interpret that is Peter saying, so that you all can bring this story back to the Jerusalem church and you all can make it clear that what God did here was indeed an act of God and not just something that I did, I want you to be fully involved in this process. I want you guys to baptize them so that you can be able to say, I personally know and believe that these Gentiles received salvation. Because you can imagine this is going to be a difficult message for the Jerusalem church to receive, to believe that the Gentiles were fully included just like they were. And so Peter had them baptize them, so they were fully involved. And the last thing we see here in this passage, the final thing we see here is that to confirm the message, to confirm that it was received, we see that the new converts do something which all believers should do. And it is this, when you are in God's family, you naturally want to spend time with God's people. You see these new Gentile believers say, listen, stay with us, stick with us, spend some time with us, help us to get to know God better. They don't let them just leave immediately after they receive the gospel and they've been transformed. These new converts want the old converts to stay with them and to stick with them and be able to fellowship with them. And this is further evidence of their inclusion. The wall, the barriers that were up there were completely broken down at this moment. And Peter remained there for many days. I want to give you one last quote as, uh, as the, the worship team comes up. This, this quote is uh, from Spurgeon. He says, I once visited an aged Christian woman who said to me when she was near death, Sir, I do not think that God will appoint me my portion with the ungodly, for I could never bear their company. And I do hope that I shall be among his people, though I am very unworthy, for I never was so happy as when I was with them. Spurgeon replied, Yes, you will keep the same company forever. The sheep shall be with the sheep, and the goats with the goats. Your delight prophesies your destiny. He says to this older Christian woman just before she died, he says, the fact that you love to be with God's people is evidence that you are in God's family. Because what God's family wants to do is God's family wants to spend time with God's people. As we bring this message to a close, I want you to reflect on a, on a few things uh, during this time of response. I want you to think about these things. Have you received the gospel message that was prepared for you? 
Do you know the gospel well enough that you could share it with others? Do you see yourself as God's messenger? Do you see yourself as a person who has been empowered to reconcile, much like Peter was? Have you given the message to others? And finally, are you willing to give the message to anyone and to everyone? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given us this morning. Father, we thank you for allowing us to to be able to be your messengers and to bring this message to all people, no matter their backgrounds and no matter our struggles. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we um, have this time of response, Lord. Um, If anyone wants to come forward and pray with someone, I pray that they would do that. Ask God to just continue to to transform our hearts, to continue to, to grow us. Lord, as we prepare ourselves to joyfully take communion, I pray that all those who are in Christ would celebrate what you have done for us in your body and your blood. Father, be with each person as they come forward to pray and to seek you for more power to live life your way. We ask all these things in the name of your Son.